Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. You'll also want to put your finger in Genesis 22. We'll read those in just a moment. Hebrews 11 and Genesis 22. People of God, what do you believe regarding the testing of faith? What is God doing when according to His infinite wisdom He tests you and tries you? If it's lessons He wants us to learn, isn't there another way we could learn them? What do you believe Christian, regarding the testing of your faith. The Christians to whom this letter was written to were perhaps asking similar questions. God had brought about them a series of trials, a season of testing. On one hand, they had the daily troubles of living the Christian life. You know what those are. Sluggish faith, a love that is cold, dampened. You're tired of sojourning in the wilderness. On the other hand, they had the outside pressure to renounce Christ and to return to Judaism. To say to themselves, Christ isn't really that much better. Besides, he costs a lot. These Christians were hard-pressed and weakening in faith. 5.11 So, in an effort to strengthen these saints, the author turns to Of all things, biography. He writes about those who came before, who by faith entrusted themselves to God. They entrusted themselves. Not certain things about them and not certain things about their life. They entrusted themselves to God, not perfectly but faithfully. Their faith wasn't a perfect faith. In fact, if you're like me, you're wondering why some of these people are even in Hebrews 11. Their faith wasn't a perfect faith, but it was a real faith. Abraham, for example, was tested by God in humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, it was his faith in God, what he is and what he could do that led Abraham all the way home to glory. I want us to see this man and his faith in God under two headings. The testing of faith, boys and girls, is number one. The testing of faith and the uses of faith. 
the testing of faith, and the uses of faith. We're going to read a longer section this morning, so I'm going to ask you just to remain seated. Hopefully by now you have your finger in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering, offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And now Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. 
And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Oh, this is God's inspired word. Thanks be to God. Beloved, the testing of faith The testing of faith. I want to walk through this text with you in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. What things? After what things? Let me name a few. After leaving his home in Ur to sojourn in a foreign land of Canaan, Abraham's faith would be tested. After rescuing Lot and interceding for Sodom, Abraham's faith would be tested. After waiting 25 years for the promise to arrive in Isaac, God tested Abraham. After all of these things, God is going to test Abraham beyond any and all prior difficulties. You and I are not going to cruise to glory. We will be tested if this verse says anything with those three little words after these things. You will be tested all the way home. Tested not so that God can learn something of you. Tested so that you can learn something of your faith. Verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I feel at this point in the story, I'm, as I've said to a couple of you already, I'm just out of my depth. If you can get past verse 2 in the reading of this account without suffering some sort of emotional pain, come talk to me after the service. The trial to which Abraham is subjected to is excruciating. God commands his friend 
Abraham to take his son Isaac and slay him on the mountain he provides. One can imagine Abraham's face turning blanket white and his stomach turning within. What? What are the Canaanites going to say? I come home alone. What are the Perizzites going to say? Who dwell in the land. How can God, who forbids murder, call me now to slay my only beloved son? What is Sarah going to say? Right? How will I ever look my wife in the face again if I come home without our boy? And furthermore, Isaac is the son in whom all blessings and promises are found. It was the line of Isaac that the Messiah was to be born. And therefore, to slay Isaac is, humanly speaking, to prevent the promises from being fulfilled, the hope of the church from being born, and the nations from ever being saved. Slaying Isaac doesn't make any sense. It ruins everything. Or does it? Or does it? Saving faith reasons differently. Saving faith reasons thus. One, God's ways are always good. God's ways are always good. Two, God's promises are infallible. God's promises are infallible. Therefore, saving faith says, if there comes a time in my life and you know that this is true, in which God's ways seem to cross his promises. You ever been there? when God's ways seem to not be in harmony with His promises, saving faith says, I will trust God and leave Him to do the absolutely unthinkable, i.e., raise my boy from the dead. That's how saving faith speaks to the believer. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I wonder what that gaze must have been like. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. What an amazing statement of faith. Did you catch that? I, Abraham says, okay, we're good there. And the boy. The boy I'm supposed to slay on the mountain are coming back to you, servants. 
It's an incredible statement of faith. Abraham believed somehow that they were leaving together. (laughs) He and his son were walking home together, even if it meant his son being raised from the ashes of that altar. They were going home together. Now, let me ask you a question. Had Abraham ever seen anybody raised from the dead? No. No. Abraham trusts God by faith, not knowing or not seeing being someone raised from the dead because faith is, but what? The conviction of things not seen. That's what Abraham had, real faith. I know God promised through Isaac the Messiah would come, and even though God's ways presently for, for me seem to cross God's promises, Abraham trusts God. Congregation, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. We cannot let what we, as hard as this is, See and feel and know externally dictate to us what our God is and what He can do. These eyeballs don't tell us everything. We must live by faith. In what God is. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And I don't think we're supposed to read Hebrew narrative as if it comes across clinical or mechanical. Abraham is a father. He loves his son Isaac. One can sense, I think, the tension in the boy's voice. There's something missing here, Dad. The wood, the fire. Where's the animal? Where's the lamb? And Abraham, with a trembling voice perhaps, God has the lamb, son. God will make a way. I might have to shove this knife through your body. 
It'll raise you from the dead. He'll make a way, son. I don't know how, but it'll make a way. God has the lamb. You been there? I don't know. Make a way. Because what you're doing in my life doesn't seem to be in harmony with your promises. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and led him to the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered as a burnt offering instead of his son. I can imagine the smile on Abraham's face at this point, right? Thank you for interrupting that moment. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And he said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What a remarkable story. It ends as one would hope. God made a way. The boy is spared. As the knife is raised, at the very moment the knife is raised, a substitute is given. All works out well. And if you have eyes to see, beloved, the reason this story is so remarkable is because it shines and pulses with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the better Isaac, carries the wood upon which he would be bound, the cross. Jesus, the better Isaac, is the beloved Son whom the Father loves, in whom all of the promises of salvation reside. And Jesus, the better Isaac, climbs the fearful mountain to offer up his life for his people for you and for me. The boy becomes the lamb. But unlike Isaac, God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. And so we can look at Calvary and say like Abraham, on the mount of the Lord, it is provided. And oh, beloved, it is provided at the cross of Christ. All pleasure, all delight, all satisfaction, 
all the promises of which you need to live this life are bound up with that greater Isaac upon that tree. On the mount of the Lord, it was provided. Whenever your faith is tested, hear this, and you doubt God's ways, look to the cross and know for certain that all of God's ways are good. The cross is the prism through which you must view all of life. If you can get there, my friend, I pray that you can get there. The cross of Christ is the prism through which you must view all of life. If you doubt God's goodness, look nowhere else than when he offered up his son for you. John Owen says, sometimes through God's providence, there may appear to be an inconsistency between God's commands and his promises. Nothing but faith, bowing the soul to divine sovereignty, can reconcile this. It's the end of the Bible study. I want to talk to you about a few uses of the faith. A few uses of faith. I have two, but the second one has four subpoints. So just for those taking notes, maybe you'll need a little more paper. Number one, real faith is prepared to surrender all to God. Thank you, Robert, for leading us in that song. Real faith is prepared to surrender all to God. Abraham knew, as we know today, 1 Corinthians 6, we are not our own. We are the Lord's. Everything we have and everything we are, beloved, we are God's surrender, therefore, beloved, to the will and the infinite wisdom of God. Easy to say, hard to do, hard to believe. Get your faith there by divine assistance, beloved. One way to get your faith there, in my opinion, one of the best treatments of surrender to God in times of testing is The Crook and the Lot by Thomas Boston. The Crook and the Lot by Thomas Boston. His main text, Ecclesiastes 7.13, which reads this. Boys and girls, you can memorize this. It's very short. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Answer for Boston and Ecclesiastes? No one. For Boston, the lot is a person's lot in life. Their circumstances as ordered by God. My life, your life, and what happens in them, that's our lot. The crook is not a criminal, according to Boston. The crook is adversity. Being hard-pressed. Those unpleasant aspects of life. I.e. the call the slayer on son. Boston says, quote, Because the crook in the lot is of God's making, 
be reconciled to it. Surrender under it. Whatever it is, dear Christian, he says. Otherwise, your surrender under the crook in your lot cannot be a Christian surrender. Is there anything, beloved, in your life that is off limits to God? Real faith is prepared to surrender all to God. Two, real faith lays up provisions for times of testing. Four subpoints, then I'll be done. Real faith lays up provisions for times of testing. This is the way you use your faith. These provisions that are laid up for you are given to you in the gospel. Okay? They are gospel provisions. And you need to store them up so that when a test approaches, those doctrines and promises, gospel provisions, keep your heart full of a sense of the love of God and Christ for you. Okay? We know God loves us theologically and we see it in the Bible, but the doctrines and promises embedded in the word and knowing them by faith give you a sense of the love of God and Christ for you. Well, these come from John Calhoun. This is not, these are not mine. One, or A, two A. One provision. A conscience sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. What a provision. A conscience sprinkled clean with the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10.22 When you and I laid hold of the righteousness of Christ by faith, it gives you an everlasting peace with God and a true peace of conscience. And when that peace takes a effect on the conscience when you know that you're free from the law you know that there is now no condemnation for you you know that the law's demands have been satisfied there's nothing you can do to impress God you know that your conscience has been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ and therefore you have nothing to fear in this life and therefore you know that God is not testing you out of harshness. He is testing you because He is good and wants you to see your life as He sees it. And the test brings that to life. Spiritual contentment comes forth as we think of this truth. Two, B. Another gospel provision, the boundless grace, mercy, and love of God in Christ. The boundless grace and mercy and love of God in Christ. As long as one apprehends God as remote, distant, or worse, harsh, it will remain impossible for that person to place even the smallest confidence in God even the smallest confidence. But 
if that person is persuaded, convinced by faith that God in Christ is a God of grace, mercy, and love, then that person will be encouraged to trust God all the more. The pardoning mercy and grace of God in the gospel are to the believer inducements to trust in Him. Psalm 137, O Israel, and you can say, O church, hope or trust in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. So the Scripture is always pulling the harsh rug that we place under God. No, God is harsh. He's testing us. He's harsh now or He's remote. And Scripture says, no, He's not. Get that out of there. He's testing you out of love and in His goodness. Store up this provision in times of goodness. You'll need it in times of testing. To see the infinite wisdom of a promising God. Even believers, if we look only to what providence has brought us, we will be like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed. James 1.6 It is not until we take into our view the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God that even in the deepest perplexities of life we can trust His Word. Every way of God that seems to cross His promises has from eternity been known to Him. It has been known to Him He knows how to honor His mercy and His providence. They are one. So Calhoun says, here is high encouragement. Even in the most distressing circumstances, to trust with full assurance that the Lord will lead us forth by the right way, guide us with counsel, and perfect that which concerns us, that He will give us that which is good and do all things well. He doesn't give anything to us for our bad. And I know what some of you have gone through. And I know that seems trite to say. But I say it on the grounds of Romans 8.28. Nothing is ultimately bad news for us. I don't know how to make sense of that in some way. But all of God's ways towards His children are good. They're always good. Last point. The infinite power of God in Christ. Power belongs to God. And it is often used in Scripture as an encouragement to trust Him. Isaiah 26, 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord is everlasting strength. His almighty power can, with the utmost ease, perform all His promises to them who trust Him. 
Ephesians 3.20, He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3.20. Is the performance of some promise to the believer impossible? Faith, viewing the power of God, sees the bringing about of all His promises to be infinitely easy. When you have no sense of it and you grasp the power of God, bringing that promise to bear on your soul is infinitely easy to God. What can be easier than to speak a word? And yet one word from the mouth of the Almighty who commanded and it stood fast can accomplish all His promises without the smallest difficulty. Here, beloved, is firm footing for the believer. So what is the key when you are tested? What is the key when you are undergoing the test of God? You must understand saving faith and how it reasons. God's ways are always good and all His promises are infallible. He will make a way. He did it with Abraham. He can do it with you. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are out of our depth when we look at this text and we recognize that it all went well for Abraham at this point and there are times where it doesn't look to be well for us. And yet it is, Lord. Your providence is always working for the good of your people. May we ever believe that. May we ever trust you. And may the cross be always in our gaze as we live this life. Amen.